The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. But by the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praises reach to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning, everyone. I'm excited to open the word with you all today. As uh, Mike said, my name is Travis Barrett. Um, I've actually been working with the youth at Coram Deo here for about five years. And before that, um, I've actually been leading the student ministry since August. I, it's a joy and a privilege to invest in the next generation, and I work with a great team, which is why I want to quick give, uh, take this opportunity to say that with the school year coming up in August, both CD Kids and student ministry are looking for more volunteers. Um, so if you're not currently serving in student ministry or, or uh, in the church, I'd love to ask you to maybe consider, is this a way that you could maybe be serving? Um, you can talk to Kelly Greening or myself if you want to dive in, but uh, we'd love to talk with you about joining one of those teams. Um, before August, I actually spent, like Mike said, a year in Scotland studying theology, which was obviously an amazing opportunity, but it was also kind of difficult. Uh, being away from people that I love for an entire year. I was away from my family, my friends, and my church family. All of you guys, I was gone. Um, so thankfully, the church gave me this uh, staff photo to take with me to Scotland, which was just a great gift. Um, I took it with me, so I, I wish I could have taken all of you guys with me to Scotland, but I couldn't, so I took this photo instead. Uh, as you can see along the border, they all wrote little notes to me. Um, so here we have from Pastor Justin Curtis, uh, what is grief, if not love, persevering? <laughs> it sounds poetic, but it's from a Marvel TV show um, <laughs> that we were both watching. Um, here's another one from uh, Mike Kresnick, who was just up here. He, he said, I am cheering you on beyond the great pond as you pursue your glorious purpose. 
which astute MCU fans would know that that's another Marvel reference. <laughs> Most of these are actually movie references or inside jokes. Um, that's how I like to connect with people. But a few of them are just sincere speaking from the heart. Like my favorite one uh, is actually from Micah Bruce. He's a poetic guy. He was up here leading us. And um, he is really succinct. And so he just said two really powerful words that um, I thought were really meaningful. He said, good riddance. <laughs> I, I think what happened was that he was maybe the first person that was writing on here, so he didn't know like, the vibe of what, of what was going to be on here. Either that or he just genuinely was really excited for me to leave. I'm not really sure. But in any case, I think this was just a wonderful gift. It was, I was able to take it with me to Scotland. And so when I had people over and I was talking with friends and I was telling them about the church that I came from, I could actually pull this out and I could say, this is a picture of the church. This is the people. Um, they could see you guys even though we were over in Scotland. Or even if I wanted to uh, remember you guys, I could take a look at that photo and I could just remember the church that I came from. I could see you guys even though I was far, far away. So what does that have to do with our passage this morning? Well, we all want to see God. Uh, we worship an invisible God, which means that uh, it can make it kind of hard to believe in or even worship him or trust in him. And I'm not just talking about proving that he exists by sight. I mean, we have a deep longing to experience and see the goodness, truth, and beauty of God. We want to see God. Uh, one Scottish novelist put it this way. He said, even the man knocking on the brothel door is unconsciously looking for God. I think the man is going to the brothel instead of God because he's settling for a distortion of the good. He is wanting to experience something that he can see and taste and touch now instead of uh, going to an eternal joy that requires faith. We long to see the one that our hearts were made for, but the problem is we can't see him. And so the question that we're going to be talking about this morning is how do we worship a God that we can't see? Psalm 48 offers a surprising answer to that question. Behold God by looking at the city of Zion. That's where we're headed this morning, and we're going to be covering three questions uh, to kind of talk about that. We're going to ask, what was the city of Zion? What is the city of Zion? And what will be the city of Zion? So let's dive in. First, what was the city of Zion? Psalm 48 describes the literal city of Jerusalem, which is another name for Zion. Uh, Jerusalem is, of course, the capital of Israel, and it sits up on a hill. And so the way that the psalm is written, it actually invites us to imagine ourselves walking up the hill, looking at the city, looking at its buildings, and meditating on what we're looking at. That's why it has all these detailed descriptions throughout about its structures and buildings. Uh, in verse 1, we have um, the holy mountain. In 3, we have strong, it's a stronghold in its citadels. And in 12 and 13, we're supposed to count its towers, note its ramparts, and tour its citadels. The psalm is imagining us to imagine and see these buildings with our eyes. Of course, these weren't just decorative buildings like palaces or, or gardens. These were for the defense of the city. So citadels would be these massive strongholds that could keep people safe. Uh, ramparts were these huge walls that would surround the city. 
um, and keep them safe from invaders. And, and towers were, of course, where um, watchmen could keep a lookout for any dangerous activity outside of the city. So the psalm is describing a well-fortified, a well-protected city, a city that you would want to be in. It's a city that you think is safe and welcoming and one that is a fortress. So at one level, we are talking about the literal city of Jerusalem. But the psalm isn't just worshiping a bunch of buildings, as though it was just reveling in a really well-fortified city. No, the city is talking about a bunch of buildings in order to talk about the God of Zion. See, you have to understand the significance that Jerusalem holds in Scripture. Jerusalem is the place that God has chosen to reside in. It's the place where his actual presence is. It's the place where God chose his ideal king to rule from. That's why at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles, God says, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So Psalm 48 looks at Zion and sees more than just a bunch of buildings. It sees the God who has chosen and protected this city. James Hayes, an Old Testament scholar, puts it this way. He says, in Zion's role as city of God, its citadels become the medium of theophany. Okay, don't look at me like that. I know medium of theophany is a really weird word. It's a really nerdy word. I probably just lost half of you by even mentioning medium of theophany. I'm I'm including it because that is actually going to help us unlock this psalm. If we can understand medium of theophany. So I'm going to take a second to explain that term. Um, First, theophany. That's just a word that we use to describe a manifestation of God. And the second, the other word, medium. Reformed pastor uh, R.C. Sproul has a great way of explaining this idea, a medium. He has this classroom of people together, and Sproul asks, uh, how many of you saw the Super Bowl last week? And you know everybody kind of, you know, I saw the Super Bowl, raises their hand. And he singles one sucker out, and he says, really? You saw the Super Bowl? Really, where'd you sit? And the guy says, in my living room. And Sproul blows up and he says, you didn't see the Super Bowl. You weren't even there. You were looking at pixels on a screen and you thought that was the Super Bowl. No, you were looking at a medium. That's what we're talking about this morning. A medium of theophany is something that we can look at to see God. It's something that we can, it's a way for us to behold who God is. So when we say that the city of Zion is a medium of theophany, we mean that the city of Zion is a way for people to see who God is. So if you look at verse 3, it says, Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Or starting in verses 9, 10, and 11, we see specific attributes, actual characteristics of God listed through meditation on the actual uh, city. Um, In verse 9, we have, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. Uh, In verse 10, your right hand is filled with righteousness. And 11, let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. So we actually learn specific things about God, about his character, by looking at this city of Zion. Um, The most provocative way, maybe, that it's put is actually in verses 12 through 14, where it describes the towers, the ramparts, the citadels. It's describing the physical city. And then in 14, it says, this is God. 
One commentator, uh, Pastor Dane Ortland, says this. He says, the buildings of the city, the building of the temple, so represented God's presence that they could virtually be called God. So these mediums are, these buildings are a medium to see who God is. But how? How are towers and citadels showing the character of God? Well, they're doing it in three ways. First, uh, Israel remembers God's activity in the past when they look at these buildings. Like I said, these buildings would have actually been used to protect this city, and so when they look at the walls, they could remember all the past conflicts that the Lord has brought them through. That's why in verses 4 through 7, it describes a past encounter with kings who came to the city and trembled, and, uh, trembled in fear and then fled. So Israel remembers what God has done in the past when they look at this city. And then secondly, these buildings are not just a memorial. They are actually still functionally protecting them. So they're not only remembering the past, but they experience in the, presence, in the present God's activity. Uh, that's why in verse 8 we see, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. Um, they're not just remembering something in the past that was a long, long time ago. They are experiencing God's activity in the present when they look at these buildings. And then thirdly, they, have a, they are assurance of future faithfulness, of God's faithfulness to them in the future. Um, that's why at the very, very end of this uh, chapter we read, uh, we may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. There's a, a looking forwards towards tomorrow. This city is a medium of theophany because it shows who God is when they look at what God has done in the past, it allows them to experience God in the present, and they anticipate God's faithfulness in the future. So it's likely that this psalm would have been read at various uh, victory, significant military victories in Israel's uh, history, like at the first Jewish revolt in 66 AD, when the Jews successfully cast out all the occupying Romans from Jerusalem. You can almost hear the Jews singing uh, verse 5 as they're watching the Romans flee from their city. For behold, the kings assembled, they came together, and as soon as they saw Jerusalem, they were astounded. They were in panic, and they took to flight. But you can also imagine the deep feeling in their stomachs, of just a sinking feeling when they saw the Roman general Titus show up four years later with an entire army surrounding the city. This was the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You see, Titus was going to starve out Jerusalem. He waited for months around the city. He'd let pilgrims in, but not let anybody out so that there was more mouths to eat their supplies and dwindle them down. And by the end of the year, Jerusalem had been burned down and the temple had been destroyed. And the only things left standing were three towers in the Herodian citadel and the western wall of the city, what we would now call the Wailing Wall. We call it that because even to this day, Jews go to the Wailing Wall, the last standing wall of the temple, to grieve and mourn all the tragedies that they've experienced. So the city of Jerusalem, that was a symbol and represented God's faithfulness and, and presence, had been destroyed. That leads to the next question, what is the city of Zion? If in verse 13, uh, we're instructed 
to walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her citadels. How are we supposed to do that today? Uh, where are we supposed to look for the medium to see who God is? For us, what is the city of God, the city of Zion? Well, today, we can say that the city of Zion is the people of God. The church is a medium to show who God is. How am I making that connection? Well, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament invites us to see the city of Zion as the people of God. In Hebrews uh, 12, verses 22 through 26, he writes, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The word for assembly in uh, verse 23 is the same Greek word that's translated as church. So we can actually walk around Zion by inspecting and looking at the people of God to see who God is. But how is that possible? How did we get from a literal city of buildings to a community of people? Well, the answer is in verse 24, where uh, in Hebrews uh, 22 through 24, he says, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You see, Jesus is the cornerstone of the city of Zion. He has established his church to be uh, a holy priesthood, to be the people of God, uh, so that the world can look to the church and know who God is. That's why uh, a little bit later in the New Testament, uh, Peter actually quotes Isaiah to show that Christ is the cornerstone of Zion. Peter writes, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Christ has established his church to be a city that shines on a hill so that the world can look to the church as a medium of theophany, a medium to see who God is. And so the world will see who God is by looking at the love of his people. A while back, I was talking with a friend about deconstruction and people who leave Christianity because they just can't stand the church. And my friend had actually really recently lost a really close loved one. And he was telling me how people in the church um, had said some ignorant things that were maybe trying to help but weren't too helpful. But he also said that there were so many in the church who loved him well, who sat with him in the grief. And he said that he contrasted his position with the deconstructionists because he said, I wanted to hate God because of what happened. But I couldn't bring myself to it because I knew that he was loving me so well by his people. Now, I know that that's not everybody's story, and it's probably not even most people's story. But my prayer is that there would be more stories like it. Stories where people, no matter how frustrated or angry they got, they couldn't shake God because it was so evident that God was loving them through his people. Notice that. It's not that they loved God despite his people, but because they loved God because of his people. They knew he was a loving God through the love of the church. So if the city of Jerusalem 
was a medium of theophany for Israel, then the people of God are a medium of theophany today. We can see who God is and what he has done by looking at the church. At the start of this year, you might remember, in Kentucky, there was a revival going on at Asbury University. And you might remember there was also a lot of confusion and chaos about, like, how do we make sense of what's happening here? There was a lot of takes. Was this all just show, or was it real, genuine revival? Was this just emotional manipulation, or was it actually a movement of God? There was a lot of voices, a lot of takes on how we should look at that event, and the one that helped me the most was from a pastor named Gavin Ortland. You see, Ortland uh, presented eyewitness accounts of what was going on at, Asbury, uh, at the Asbury Revival, and then he presented um, Jonathan Edwards' description of the first Great Awakening in the 18th century. And the similarities between the two were striking. And then Ortland went even further. He showed video interviews of his grandparents experiencing revival of the 70s. Um, and they were talking about what they experienced. And the way that they described it was, again, consistent with what we saw at Asbury and what was accounted uh, by Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century. And so this is why it's important that we actually know the history of the church. We should be people who are passionate to hear about God's activity in the past so that we can experience his activity in the present. Not in a unique way. It's a way that's consistent with how God has always acted. And that's the point. In the Asbury Revival, something was happening that I had never personally experienced before. And so I struggled to make sense of it. But by looking at God's activity in the past, I was able to conclude that, yeah, this is an authentic movement of God. This is consistent with how God has always revealed himself to the next generation in a tangible and deeply personal way. So we look to the past, we look at the history of the church to see how God has moved so that in the words of Psalm 48, we can say, we may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Friends, I want you to feel the weight of what this song is telling us. Coram Deo Church is a medium of theophany. People will come to see and understand who God is through us. I hope that moves us to the deepest repentance, the strongest humility, the, the most earnest conflict resolution, the most energetic worship, and the deepest hospitality. Coram Deo Church, our lives and our community should show people the character of God himself. And if we can see who God is by his church today, how much more when his church will be perfected? If Christ has established a city to shine on a hill now, how much more when that city will be made holy? Let's now turn to the third question. What will be the city of Zion? In verse 8, we read, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. See, these verses can't be just describing the old Jerusalem because that city fell. And it can't be describing the church in its present form. These verses are describing a forever city, something that will last forever. 
You know, the, the Apostle John in Revelation calls this forever city the new Jerusalem. In 20, Revelation 21, 2 and 3, John writes, And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is when George Bailey is walking home with Mary. He's falling madly in love with her. And there's this uh, line that everybody quotes about him lassoing the moon and giving it to her. But then after that, there's this really weird line that nobody quotes, uh, where he says, and then you can swallow it, see? And it'll dissolve, and it'll shoot out of your fingers, and, and your toes, and the ends of your hair. And you're, you, as a viewer, you watch it, and you go, what is he talking about? And, and that's when the guy in the chair butts in, and he says, why don't you kiss her already? I love that scene because George Bailey is just obviously falling madly in love with this girl. And he is grasping for any possible communication that he can show something that is so far beyond what words can express. I think it's kind of like that when we come to the New Testament writers describing the new Jerusalem. That's what John is doing when he's describing these massive walls of the new Jerusalem and, and the gates of pearl and, and the foundations of precious stones. It's like he's taking Psalm 48 to heart. He's walking about Zion, going around her, noting every detail, not to worship the city of Zion, but to worship the God of Zion. Like the psalmist who's describing every tower in Jerusalem, or George Bailey describing his lover, the detailed description is meant to draw our attention to the person behind it all. The beauty of New Jerusalem comes from its king. The first and last place we should look to see who God is, is Jesus Christ. When we admire the person and work of Christ, we see the fullest expression of who God is. In his book, On the Glory of Christ, John Owen writes, There are therefore two ways or degrees of beholding the glory of Christ. The one is by faith in this world. The other is by sight or immediate vision in eternity. For we here behold him darkly in a glass, that is by faith, but we shall see him face to face by immediate vision. In this life, we behold Christ by faith. That means that you can take your Bibles and you can look at the gospel accounts of the cross and the empty tomb, and you can say, this is God. This is a God who dies on the cross on your behalf. This is a God who swallows up death to give you life. By faith, we can look at Christ's life, death, and resurrection and see that it is the clearest picture of who God is. But you know what's better than seeing by faith? Seeing face to face. That's how we beheld God in the Garden of Eden, and that's how we were meant to behold God, by sight. Notice how John Owen uses the word immediate vision. Immediate. That word means the absence of a medium. 
After the fall, humans have always needed a medium to behold God. We've always needed something in between us to see who God is. But the hope of the New Jerusalem, the hope of the Christian faith, is that we will be with God and he will be with us. We will no longer need a medium. We will see him face to face. In Revelation, John is bursting with anticipation of when he will behold God by sight, not just by faith. In 22, he writes, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Are you living with that anticipation? Are you? If you remember the photo that I took with me to Scotland, it was meaningful and comforting to me, not just because it was a memory of something in the past. It was a photo of what I had to look forward to when I returned home, of the reunion of my beloved that was awaiting me. I could look at this photo and I could anticipate the reunion that awaited me. That's what Christ has established his church for, union with God. We, the church, anticipate that union and we live from a confidence that we will see Christ face to face. And though the church was a medium of theophany imperfectly, we will no longer need a medium. There will be no fear, no doubt, no darkness, nothing in between us and our God. And we can say with Psalm 48, So, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Christian, don't you see that this is your future? This is what we're headed towards. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings in anticipation of when we will behold God directly, face to face, along with all of God's people. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will see and worship God directly. This is why we're here this morning. So let's praise him now. Pray with me. Lord, you are the goodness, the truth, and the beauty. You are goodness, truth, and beauty itself, and we long to see you. We see that goodness and truth and beauty in your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that even this morning, as we're worshiping him, as we're worshiping you and meditating on who you are, that you would be shaping and forming us to be the people who show the world who God is, that when they look at us, they can see your goodness, your truth, and your beauty. Lord, we praise you for who you are and what you've done. And in your name we pray, amen.